0: Howdy, and welcome to this web series podcast thing. In this episode, we will be discussing what goes into a coding standard. Enjoy. Yeah, yeah. So I'll just start off with, um, I guess, the definition of a coding standard of what I gathered from our pre-discussion about this. Uh, what I have for this is a coding standard is a collection of coding conventions and styles that all code net project adheres to.
1: I agree Anything with that.
0: Okay, yeah. sounds good. All right, and then uh, the second part of this is why is one even needed? Um, kind of what I put down is for the ilities, and those ilities are readability, testability, flexibility, maintain- main obtainability, uniformity, um, and then other illities that you can think of. What it brings to the table is it, it gets everyone on the same page, all the developers on the same page. So you have this kind of uniform code base and that's uh, easier for new developers to pick up. And, um, and then the business-wide to this, it actually translates to lower costs for maintainability, because you can easily onboard new developers and get them going really quick. Because you say, hey, here's the coding standard. This is what the code base should adhere to. And uh, anything to add to that or uh, modify on that?
2: No, I agree with that.
1: Would you put in your standard documentation, um, like do unit tests? like more large scale things. Unit tests is the only one I can think of. Um,
0: do- so, I guess what I came up with for my coding standard, it's not really, I guess I should say, it only focuses on the code, on really the source code for the most part. Okay. And how the code base should be laid out and Basically, you look at this coding standard whenever you're going to modify things in the code base or read the code
2: base. Or... or you're creating your first new class.
1: Right. The other item I just thought of is comments. So, Omar, we talked about contracts before. You're familiar with that whole um, designing of a contract.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: would that be part of the standard? I mean, I think that would be a reason to not allow a merge or a pull request is you don't have any contracts on these methods. Um, it's not part of the code, but it is part about, it, it is satisfy some of those illities you were talking about.
0: Com- yeah, I think comments is comments and a data contract is part of the uh, coding standard, or at least in my coding standard.
2: I did include things like unit tests and code review as grand overviews in mine as well just because those are things that they're not they don't they don't directly apply to the way in which you program but they have to exist in your process so i did put them in there even though we don't have to talk about them
0: yeah so um that that's a good point that's kind of something i i wrote down in my notes is there's so there's tons of different coding standards out there like there's the most famous one, if you do a Google search for coding standards, the one that comes up a lot in blogs and stuff, um, is NASA's coding standard. I don't know if, if that popped up in y'all's research. No, I didn't NASA, okay. Well, <laughs> in my, in my research, I guess, NASA seemed to pop up a lot and, um, it was kind of the, yeah, it, it was, it was a main point that came up in a lot of my searches. Anyways, um, I think, a coding standard for NASA is different. You can't directly take that and apply it to a different organization or team. Um, Their their coding standard is kind of, uh, it's very uh, explicit and very verbose and kind of covers the entire process from beginning to end versus I think a smaller team smaller project, smaller organization, um, or even a big organization but has small projects. I think for each project, you have a coding standard, and that coding standard doesn't have to be as verbose or have to cover as much as the process. That's my take on it, at least.
2: It makes sense that something like NASA's would be incredibly stringent. Because if yeah. you you know if you move a bit the wrong direction and your a satellite blows up you know yeah and makes more sense than if you're working on a Windows desktop application it doesn't have to be so yeah. finite.
1: Lives are at stake with NASA if yeah. ours doesn't yeah. work. Like <laughs> oh where, where's my image? It's not yeah. showing up. Exactly. End of days.
0: Yeah, and in some cases maybe not lives are at stake, but in some cases billions of dollars are at stake like the mars rover no one's life's at stake if that thing stops working but they lose a ton of money yeah. their careers at stake yeah and that's that's actually brings up an interesting point um one of one of the things in their coding standard was um to not use recursion like you can't use recursion because of uh, the possibility for looping or getting stuck in an infinite loop and uh, another one was um, define loops, so you can't have like a loop that um, that isn't terminating. Like it has to be um, a finite terminate terminating loop. I, I can't remember what the exact wording what it, of it was, but basically you can't have a loop that just you look at it and it might terminate eventually. You have to know that thing's gonna terminate in exactly 50 or less calls. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, And yeah, you can look up the NASA coding standard for more information on that. And they actually did have some pretty uh, interesting uh, information. It's in my notes. I have some links to the actual coding standard and um, some of the info I pulled from there. And I'll make that available after this.
2: Assumed they were writing in C. That makes sense.
0: Yeah, definitely in C. Um, at least they're big projects. I'm sure they use different things all over the place for different projects. Um, but uh, right before we actually get into the our coding conventions or coding standard, uh, I wanted to hit a few points um, or a few points that I, I thought of while coming up with my standard. Which was, um, and I found from other resources, was to not let your standard get too big. You actually want it, at least for smaller organizations. We already kind of went over this. Like for NASA, you do want a bigger, more, um, more comprehensive coding standard. But for you know non-safety critical, you know Windows desktop application type projects and organizations. Um, you don't want this huge coding standard that someone's going to fall asleep after reading two pages of it. You want something kind of small and, um, easy to read and go through. Um, and then to leave out kind of personal styles and flame war topics. So like indention style and things like that, that should be left in, uh, the coding style. And that's okay if y'all, y'all put that in your coding standard. that's just, uh, it was one of the tips I saw in some of the articles I read was to leave that kind of stuff out.
2: Does that make sense uh, that you wouldn't define an we, exact amount of indentation?
0: Yeah, you don't define it because you can put that kind of stuff in tools like um, like linting tools and um, the build tools, and have it you know break the build and say you basically have to fix that. Like it it it'd be the same as. Not putting a semicolon where it belongs, could be
2: interesting. Okay. Yeah,
0: and uh, I have links to it. Visual Studio has a, a built-in actual tool for this, and I just found this out. It's actually really cool. Um, I kind of want to do a, tanker? I kind of want to do a demo of it one of these days, and I'm pretty sure there's plenty of demos out there. But basically, you can you can say. Uh, you can define your full coding style. Like it had almost everything on there and uh, yeah, you can tell it to throw warnings or throw errors if you don't abide by those style rules. Uh, But yeah, that was just one of the notes I wanted to go over and then some of the questions I kind of had in mind when I was coming up, mine was, uh, is this, is this um, actually going to help or is it just a preference that I had? And on some of them, I kind of found that it actually was just a preference and not an actual thing that would add, add value. And I think that's a hard question to answer, but a, a, one that's important to ask when you're coming up with the standard. Um, all right, I blabbed on enough. So um, if one of y'all want to start with <laughs> y'all's coding standard with the floor to y'all. One,
1: two, three, not it. Oh, OK. Um, I didn't actually. I don't have a hard copy of it. I was just going to throw something out and get your guys' thoughts. Um, so, so one thing I personally am adding to my own standard is testability. Um, so if, you, if you've if got an interface, then you've got your objects and your models and your classes, just make sure you split those out. Don't have um, business logic or your data layer in the interface layer, like if you're writing um, a web API, just, just separate the code, um, just get your abstraction, your code reuse. And I feel like I'm, I might be subjective there. Like, there's not enough reuse. There's not enough abstraction. But I feel like if you're doing a code review with somebody and you, as the reviewer, say, I could see you moving this code into this other layer or model, It's worth looking into.
0: Yeah, I think the, I mean I think that's important, but it's very uh, I don't know if the word you said was opinionated, but I feel like it varies from developer to developer. So if you're in a code review, one guy may say, "Yeah, that's fine." One guy may say, "You should abstract that more." One guy should might say, "That's too abstract." Um, in my eyes, I think the coding standard should be kind of rules. Like there shouldn't be any um, any room for opinion because really you should use this coding standard in a coding review as kind of a checklist so that you're not forcing your opinion on another developer. That's kind um, of what I
2: thought, is that if, if your, your, your standard should leave... When you're in the review, there should be no opinion. It's like, eh, this looks like it follows everything we're looking for. You know, maybe how would,
1: good. How would you make this objective then? Because I feel like that is a huge part that I've missed in my own projects and I've seen some other um, people on my team miss or just not understand. Um, So, how is that possible to make it that, to objectively measure something like that?
0: I think so. I um, so one and one of the coding standards. I don't think I actually included it in mine, but in one of the coding standards, I think I wrote it down. Was, in, inheritance hierarchies should not be more than seven layers deep. So, um, Visual Studio actually has a tool for this in the code metrics. You can and actually tells you how many levels of inheritance you have, and. Um, This could just be one of your coding, this could be a line in your coding standard saying inheritance shouldn't be more than seven levels deep. Um, So if you've gone past that, it basically means you're making something way too abstract.
1: I was thinking like it must be X layers deep, like three or more. Um, How would you get to that point?
2: That's interesting. If you define a rigid rule of inheritance, seven layers, let's say, Yeah. But but there's a valid case for an eighth for whatever reason, you know, this is hypothetical for some reason there's a perfectly valid reason to make an eighth. I didn't allow that. What, what
0: I probably should have finished reading it and I I purposely stopped reading it all the way, (laughs) but I probably should have read it all the way. Um, The last part says, unless justified in either design documentation or in source code comments. Okay. That makes sense. And, And basically this would happen in the code review. The code reviewer would say um, that's past seven levels of uh, inheritance. And then the person who wrote that code would say, here's my justification. I think we need that extra layer of inheritance because of x, y, z.
2: Okay, that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Um, And I guess to go back to your original question, Jack, I think Some of the other other coding standards, at least that I have, I think they put you on the right path to where you kind of have to use abstraction and use better better, um, coding strategies in order to achieve these other coding standards. So for example, I'll just go into my first one. My first one is the cyclomatic complexity. Mm-hmm. which is um, basically a metric used to define complexity in a function. Um, it's a number of decisions in a function. Uh, Jack, I think you're familiar with this because we just went over it in a yeah. recently. Um, Justin, I think you might also be familiar with it just because I asked you to ra- run some code metrics on one of the-
2: Yeah, I'm as familiar op- as running it for you. That's, mm-hmm. that's the full extent of it. Okay,
0: so I guess real quick, I'll do a, a quick overview. Uh, if you're looking at a function and it has a, an if statement in it, mm-hmm. the way you would manually calculate the cyclomatic complexity of it is you would count. You would, you would start at one, and then you see the first if statement in the function, and you, you increment your count to two because that's your first decision you encounter. And then if there's nothing else in that function, there's no more if statements, while loops, or any other decisions then your cycle complexity of that function is two. Okay. So basically you start at one and then for each decision in the function, you add one and then the number you're left with is your complexity number.
2: Does a switch statement with 10 options add 10, it adds 10. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just want to make sure I fully understood.
0: Yeah. And so I'll read my entire, what my actual, Line item is it's um, the cyclomatic complexity of any method shall never exceed fifteen under any circumstances. Um, the cyclomatic complexity of any method may only exceed ten when there is a valid justification. So this would be that um, in code review or in a comment you would say, "I needed I needed to go over ten because refactoring it would have." Um, had a performance hit or a memory hit. It would use more memory if I would have refactored it, split up this function. Um, that would be a valid justification, I think. Uh, and yeah, it, and the why for this, why is it needed, is to keep basically functions small, doing one thing. Usually, if you have more than fifteen decisions in a um, in a function, usually you're doing more than one thing I mean unless a switch statement I'd have to look it up I think that might actually be one decision now that I'm thinking about it a little bit more clearly because you're just yeah because you're just um like if you think about a switch statement all you're validating is that first like switch on an enum value you're looking at that value once and then you're going to that case
1: so that's only one case does I mean if each case is doing a very small amount of work you could just count the whole switch as one. But if each case does something drastically different, then maybe that function is 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 doing 10 unique things. Well, what if you
0: have a, well that's a different metric, though. What if um, you have a
2: weird scenario where... I, I've never written one like this, but let's pretend it exists where you could actually hit a case and then fall into the default case as well, just because you want to do something differently every single time, but also hit the default all the way out.
0: That's still one
2: decision, I think. That's still one?
1: Okay. Yeah,
0: because you're only, like if you if you think about it at like a machine level, like it's, it's evaluating that first switch statement. It's saying, is this value equal to something? And then it goes to that case. So that's your one decision. And say in your example where the case does something and goes to the default, like there's no break after it. Mm-hmm. If it's just calling a method and then the default case is also calling a method, there's no decisions being made there like it's just okay. doing that no matter what so it's one decision i think
2: so an if statement where you're actually having you're actually calculating some value and then doing a or b that counts as two if else counts as two
0: yeah a switch is interesting i'll have to look. I'm going to
2: write that down though. okay
0: yeah making me think
2: god forbid <laughs> Because I think, and then it makes me wonder about while loops as well, or while loops may be a really weird scenario. But like, a, say a for loop that has ten iterations, mm-hmm. does that count as one, or does that count as? Oh 10? yeah,
0: yeah, that's definitely one. That's definitely uh, one. Okay.
2: Yeah,
0: that's definitely one. Okay. So that was my first uh, item on my coding standard. If you want to go on your next one, just or unless we have anything else to say about that one.
1: I think that's a really simple metric. I mean, it, you can easily measure it. Um, so during code review, it's really easy to say, no, you went past this.
0: Yeah. And actually, I think this is one of the things you can put in the build, or you can like say in the build, break it if it passes this. Um, where it gets tricky is in legacy code. So if you're working with a code base that has really bad functions that break this rule, um, that's where just it gets, the right. then, then you're just going to have to rely on code review.
2: I'd like to assume for all purposes going forward. This is a brand new project okay. and we don't have to think about legacy. Cause at the very,
0: to... at the very end, I do have some like, uh, suggestions slash comments on, uh, implementing this on a legacy code day. Okay. But yeah, don't let me forget. All right.
2: Do you have anything else, Jack?
1: Um, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but I would say having a contract or having some kind of not only having a a, a contract or some comments on every method to say the requirements, what it guarantees, basic description, um, what the environment needs to look like, but also having a standard format for those comments. So if we each add our own comments to everything, they're all going to look different unless you have a standard format to say, this section needs to be named this and under that write this. Just have an example of these comments or contracts in the uh, standard.
0: Yeah um, that for me that's kind of lies under my kind of in the same section section where I put um, how you organize the file like a class structure like all your properties at the top and and then I go into more detail by um, versus public-private statics and all that, how you organize that. And basically, you just have this template on properties always at the top, methods, public methods first, private methods after, uh, et cetera. You just keep going down on everything that you could have in a class.
1: Okay. Um, another one I bet Omar also has in his here <laughs> is uh, focusing on the readability over writability of your code. Um, so in this class, Steve um, had had said that you're only ever going to write your code once, ideally, um, but you're gonna read it dozens of times, and so will other people. So make sure your method names, class names, file names, variable names are very readable. so don't don't have x, don't have um, int as your variable names. Like what does the variable like it has the variable has a value. What does the value mean to a person? Um, same thing with method names if you're going to return a value maybe use get at the beginning of the method or if you're going to set something put set at the beginning um, and then put that into your standard come up with what you want to call your function names and then have standard function names everywhere so get set put delete etc
0: yeah, and um, I I thought about adding this, actually, to my standard, but uh, I opted not to because I asked that question, or I didn't ask the question, but one of my first notes whenever I was talking was not to bloat the coding standard. And to me, that that kind of bloats the standard because it's kind of something that, developers should do, like it's, <laughs> I mean, well, maybe, it should it, be the standard. It, well, yeah, but it's hard to define that. And like, say, like, you know, I, I said, the standard should have actual rules, like things you can check off a checklist. Whereas naming something appropriately isn't really something, it's kind of objective, is basically what I'm trying to get at. It's uh, opinions come into the back, come in as a factory there, like in code review.
1: I like you the might, idea. You might like say a, it
0: named correctly, but I might be like, oh, that's not
1: or make an attempt at naming it correctly. Yeah. Don't use something like X as a variable yeah. name. I like the idea of a, vague, of a
2: vague rule that says, you know, what was the no, one you single, single letter? It was like verb noun noun or ner- or noun. I forget what you showed me. I think it was verb noun noun. Where where there's some some structure that says you need to say gets objects. But you don't have to be specific. It does not have to say get every time that's what you're doing. But you need to be naming things descriptive names, right? Even if that's just a one bullet point. You must use descriptive names in the format of verb noun with a possible noun. Period. I could see that. Yeah. That way people just... would, that way you're not getting int x in a in a, you know as a variable. You're getting index or what what have you.
1: And especially avoid. Um... Reusing a variable for two different things. So if you if you are using x or temp or whatever, um, chances are you may in a long method use that same variable name to hold a different kind of value completely. So don't reuse the same variable in the same function. Well, ideally, your function's not that long. long. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah,
0: and so two points on that. I have that. Don't reuse variables, and or that really comes into play is on global variables. So you have a global variable, it can be assigned to a modified and different functions, even if each one of those functions is really small and does only one thing. Um, so that's where the don't reuse the variable comes into play. And then second on that I have as a line item, which I think could probably be kind of vague, so I'm kind of contradicting myself, but um, uh, I guess maybe I'll just read it. Uh, limit global variables, global variables should be, uh, oh yeah. Well, it just says limit global variables. Um, so it's kind of vague. It doesn't give you like a hard number on how many global variables you max out at. Um, and then right next to it, it says global should be marked read only when possible. Um, and so it kind of makes you think like only, when you're using a global variable, try to make it read-only as much as possible, and that kind of eliminates the the, uh, the hazard. Yeah, the hazard of using it for more than one reason because a read-only variable can only be assigned to either in code or in the constructor. So you kind of you can't reuse it, or you can reuse it, but you can't reset it. <laughs> so, um,
1: yeah. Okay, I'm good. I'll
2: I'll share the mic. Justin. So I think I looked at mine kind of the way you did, Jack, and not as much as the way you did, Omar, in okay. that it, it was more important to me. Uniformity was more important to me. Readability was more important to me than the, some of the stringent rules that I think you defined, such as method complexity and things like that. Um, a lot of mine kind of fall in line with your pretty standard. If you Google C sharp standards and look through what what everybody should be expecting to do, that some of our projects don't do. Those are the things that bother me the most. So those are the things I was thinking about. So things like you know camel casing for your variables versus Pascal casing for your classes and your file names, and your uh, methods, what have you. And using meaningful names in the structure of verb noun noun, when applicable. Um, having a comment conve- uh, having comment conventions where you have a summary describing each of your methods, you have what it's taking in, what it's expecting to be doing in a brief summary, and what you're expecting to get back. Um, never using regions, and that's something that I didn't agree with when I first read about it. Because I was like, well, why wouldn't you want to use regions? You know, I like to I like to um, condense the close them so that mm-hmm. I can read through the code faster. But a lot of the things I read said the more regions you're using, if you're using a region, there's probably you probably could be using a method that describes exactly what that region is trying to describe, anyways, or a class that describes what that region should be doing. And so, if you're using regions, you're um, uh, what did I write? Facilitating longer files and longer segments of code.
0: Yeah, You're That's saying it's okay that to be, to have a long class, a big class?
2: I'm saying it's okay to have a, well, it's okay to have a big class.
0: Well, um, I'm saying like using regions is saying, is kind of feeding the monster of of having these right. big, yeah. right. you, big you I've even seen there. I've even seen regions inside of a, a method or a function
2: exactly and those you're like okay well that should if if you have a region inside of a method that's a prime example of why you should have had another method yeah right you know what i mean so at first i read no regions i was like well i like those i like being able to do that but i now i kind of agree with it now that i've read about it um uh standard programming conventions um an interesting thing which was never catching the base exception catching specific exemption exceptions and having specific results which is something some of our projects do not do today uh um, so they're just
1: catching any exception whatsoever and, and yep, dealing and with them log all it. the
2: same way they catch them they log them they say and they fail out some of them do that
0: yeah i'd like to stop on that one i like i like that and
1: uh I How guess... we're doing it now or what justin's proposing
0: no what justin's proposing i mean we okay. I think we're lackadaisically just throwing try-catches everywhere just to be kind of safe. Like, this might fail or this is kind of critical, we'll throw a try-catch around it. Um, And then not only are we just throwing a try-catch around some piece of code, but we're also just catching the generic exception versus a, say you're doing some file I.O. stuff, you're not catching the specific exceptions and, Doing something at that scenario. Um,
2: I don't know if I necessarily think you should never catch the base exception. You could put it on there and have some kind of stringent logging that says that that says something. I, well, I don't know that that kind of gets into your accessibility or um, using excess amount of code. But but if you if you're try catching something, you 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 better have. The example of what's going to fail in that scenario. And that should be what you're catching.
0: Yeah, that's what, that's actually almost pretty close to what I wrote down. It's uh, usage of exceptions and try catch blocks should be used with purpose. Mm -hmm. Adding a try catch should have a concrete reason and avoid catching general system exception. Yep. And then the next two points underneath that is always log exceptions because a lot of, a lot of places in our code we have try catches and then the exception is just being swallowed basically at that point or we're catching the exception and actually putting it in a variable but we're not doing anything with it we're not putting it in a log or anything right um and then on top of catching a specific exception they need to be ordered in the most specific to least specific Um, that's kind of obvious, I guess, if, if you have more than one exception, it should be kind of obvious to always put the most specific one first. Uh, yeah, you can continue.
2: Uh, one that I liked that I do, that I do, and I, I didn't realize that I did it until I read about it, which was having a maximum column length in your code base so you can never write one line that is more than let's say 40 characters long you should never see a horizontal scroll bar in your in your um, files yeah you should you know you shouldn't be writing you know this or this or this or this, or this and it's all being in one line which leads to the you know kind of lens towards readability and being able to view all the code
0: yeah all you know, in a line yeah, I'll add something to that. I, I have one that flies very close to that. Um, mine said, limit number of expressions to evaluate in conditionals to two. Um, two sounds small, but uh, the way you can get around this is put those conditions or those um, expressions into variables yeah. and then name those variables. And so the reason why for this, it's not only so that you can see it and it's easy to read that way, but it also reduces cognitive load by a lot. Like, I think I actually had an uh, expression or um, an example. And uh, I, w- I won't go over the example, but basically, you know, when you're looking at this big conditional, it's a lot easier to read descriptive variable names that are Booleans or that are posed like questions versus something greater than blah, something less than blah, something equal null, something not equal null. Uh, So yeah, that's my thing. And and then say you have three conditionals and you put all three of those in variables, combine those two variables into another variable so that you limit it down to two. so yeah, it's very easy to follow this this standard that I put in there.
2: Okay, and then from there, uh, two massive bullet points that would be a whole other topic of discussion, which was using unit tests that facilitate complete code coverage, and then standard you know a standard code review that checks to make sure these steps are being followed to a T um and then automating the process there's interesting things in visual studios you can use um, one thing that i saw repeatedly and didn't get a chance to read about was a code something called code style checker where you can define your standard in the st- the checker and on build it says oh this guy used four spaces instead of three uh, and it'll it actually either alerts the code reviewer Or it fails the build. I'm not sure which one. Like I said, I didn't get to read into it. But essentially, it's a notification system that the standards not being followed in certain scenarios. And so using something like that to automate the process so that when the review comes up, it's like, oh, well, you know, you have a statement that's 50 lines long or a method that's 400 lines long. You know, what did you do wrong here? So that's that's most of mine, which was all um, stylistic rules.
0: Yeah. No. I agree with those. I mean, some of, I think some of them
2: aren't stylistic.
0: I mean, a lot of the ones I kind of made extra points on. I don't think they were stylistic. So, like the exceptions ones and the. Um, I can't remember the other ones I commented on, but
2: <laughs> no regions, meaningful names.
0: Yeah. What's nice is I didn't I didn't think it would do it, but the styling tool that you're talking about, we might be might have been reading about the same thing, but it will actually check for that um, for the naming convention. Like it checks to make sure that our properties. Um, like say you you want to prefix all your private properties with uh, an underscore, mm-hmm. it checks it checks that and it checks do do public properties are they uppercase and Pascal case, are local variables camel case, I and mean, it actually checks all that for you, which is nice. Interesting.
2: Yeah. Okay, hit us with yours and all the places that we missed. Me? Yeah. Um,
0: all right. Well, the, the other two, I don't want to go too deep into. Because the, they're kind of on the same realm as cyclomatic complexity. They're just other forms of complexity metrics, which is fan out and depth of decision nesting. Basically, I have a... In the, in the training that Jack and I went to, he called it a green light, yellow light, red light. If you're Under a certain number you're in the green light zone you you basically go ahead on the code review on the orange. uh, You basically have to explain to me why did you do it that way and give a good reason for me to pass the review and then the red light is basically no there's no way there's no reason for you to be over this metric by that much. Um, so yeah, that's fan out depth of decision nesting kind of on the same realm as cyclomatic complexity. Um, my next one was no compiler warnings, um, unless completely unavoidable, which I think in most cases you can clean up compiler warnings. We should be building our application with no compiler warnings at all. Um, method. Methods and properties should not contain the name of the class itself. Uh, this is an interesting one that I, I'd i always known and thought about in my head, but never actually put it down into words. And what this is saying is basically, imagine you have a user class and you need a property to store the user's first name. Um, you don't want to call that met or that property name user first name you want to just say first name uh it's kind of redundant to say user first name and this is just an example i mean basically the rule is if if the class name the class name is describing every or the properties are describing what's in the class so you don't have to actually put the class name in properties or methods
1: if you're looking at the property from outside the class, it would be something like user dot, user dot first name, right? Right. If key. you're,
0: yeah. And if you're naming your variables correctly and descriptively, yeah, this should all read fine. As long as you're not naming your, um, like, say you create new up a user object, as long as you don't name that user object U or X then it makes sense when you say user.firstName not mm-hmm. x.firstName uh, so the next one is use use a uh, using statement blocks on i disposable objects um, instead of try finallys or try catch finally um, it, it's basically just a c sharp practice um, it does it essentially wraps your I disposable object in a try catch finally and it calls the dispose function method on that object for you and it's just a cleaner way of doing it really Um, this one might be specific to our code base maybe not and we've actually recently started doing it but sql strings if you have sql strings in your um, database or in your code which Really, we probably should get away from and move to an ORM, but um, we're kind of stuck with that code for now. But you should use verbatim strings, so those string, literal strings, where you don't have a string format. Um, The next couple are about the exceptions, but we already talked about that. And then the next ones are about the Boolean, or the expressions, the limit them, so that they fit on your screen, basically. Limit them to two. Limit global variables. We already talked about that. Boolean properties, functions, and fields. They should be named like questions when possible. So, is what they should be prefixed basically with the question.
2: Is visible, is enabled. Right. You?
0: Okay. Um, do not use variables for multiple purposes. We already talked about that. My comment section, uh, no commenting out code. This has been a pretty recent thing that's happened. Or it's happening way too often in our code
1: base. No checking in, commented out blocks of code.
0: Yeah. And it and kind of add, implies
1: we don't know what's happening and we might want to revert it later. And I feel like well, that's a bad practice.
0: And so right next to it, it says, that is what source control is for. <laughs> huh. So, I mean, I know when I'm in a, an older class, an or, older project, and I want to see how was this working before, or just kind of look at the history. You go and open the file, and you can look at the history and all the changes that have ever happened since the beginning of the existence of that file. <laughs> and uh, you can look at the diff from each change set check-in. So yeah, that's the first thing on comments. Um, the second one is comments shall add useful information beyond what is contained in the code. So basically, no redundant comments that say, um, you know, adding this variable and this variable or uh, opening a connection whenever you have connection open. Yeah, checking like if this
2: exists, and the next next line is method if exists. exists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So. And, and I think these go away if you're naming your stuff, your variables and your methods correctly. It kind of takes away the need for those types of comments. So they kind of go hand in hand. Uh, the, next, the next and last one I have on comments is they shall never contradict the code. So if you see an old comment, make sure to update it. So always keep the comments up to date. That one's really hard to do even for I guess senior developers I, I know I've seen other developers not do that, not keep their comments up to date. And I think it's just a hard thing to do. Like I don't I don't think there's a fix for that. Like there's no tool to fix that.
2: That lends to the legacy issue when you're working on a project like ours that's I don't know what two million lines of code at this point.
0: Yeah. That one's hard and hard to do because there's comments that that are talking about code but you don't know if you've actually changed the meaning of the code and is it doing something different from that comment because the code is so complex at some points.
2: Yeah.
0: But a lot of these kind of play hand in hand like they, they kind of play off each other because if you start cutting down these functions to smaller chunks of code and keeping them under the cyclomatic complexity then you have these comments that you can keep up to date because they're right there right next to the code and you can Tell for sure, yes, I've changed the meaning of it, or no, it's exactly the same. I don't need to update it. Makes yeah. right.
2: perfect sense on a new project that's following all of these from the get go.
0: Yeah. Um, and so, kind of my last one is, or my last section is the file structure. Uh, class name shall be named the same as the file name. Um, this one's a little hairy because we do have instances that I think make sense where you have more than just a class in a file. So you have like an enumeration in there or a interface in there, which, in some instances, I do I do think it's perfectly fine to have that interface or that enumeration in the same file as a class. Um, but I think this is something that. That can probably be kept under in control in code review like if you see a, an interface that's obviously going to be used by more than one class that should probably have its own file. Um, same thing with an enumeration if that enumeration is only being used by that one class it's fine in there, but if it's needs to be used by Or it's obvious that it's going to be used by more than one class it should probably have its own its its own file. Probably shouldn't live in one place because then it, it's kind of hard to find. Um, but again, this one gets hairy because you have the power of an IDE there. You have Visual Studio at your tips of your fingers. You can just search for the enumeration or, yeah. Anyways, moving on to the next one. <laughs> it's um, the order of the class members, which we already kind of talked about this. I'll, I'll kind of go what my order of the classes and i guess y'all can tell me if your thoughts on the class order should differ but the way i see it is public should go at the top public um, static fields static property or public properties and then public fields and then underneath that would be the private static fields the private properties and then the private fields, and then the public methods, and then the private methods.
2: And why? Why that order? And what would you, and, and like constants and read-onlys, where do those fall in? Just if they're public or private? I,
0: I think constants and read-onlys would be where I put the static. So they would be above the properties in the fields. Okay. Um, yeah. I
1: think the only and, time and, I've ever written like with publics and privates in the same class is I would just naturally do my public um, property names and then private under that. And then I would do the private getters and setters below that. And then the public methods and getters and setters last.
0: So So my reasoning for it, I'll go ahead. I
1: have like public, private, private, public. I don't know why. It's just how it it naturally.
0: Well, that's kind of how mine is. Mine's public, private, public, private, but it's public. Fields, properties, fields, private fields, properties, fields, and then public methods, private methods. Okay. And the reason I structure it that way is I think you want to see all of the public public stuff first. Yeah. And I think the the properties and static static fields, I think, are the most important because that's what you're going to use without even newing up an instance of that class. So I think in my head, it's more important. Um, First thing you want to see, but really take all this with a grain of salt because really it should just be public at the top private underneath the ordering of the details of that can be mixed because you have the power of the IDE where you can search a class. Um, but anyways, continuing on my reason about this is you want to see the public stuff first static fields I think are more important properties again are more important fields. Really shouldn't be used in the newer versions of C sharp. C sharp unless you really need to. Um, and the only fields you should be using are privates, and that's why they should probably be after the public properties. Um, and then yeah, public methods because they're more important than the private methods. That's my reasoning for it.
2: I definitely write my methods in that order. I definitely I. I don't want to call it hide, but I push the privates to the bottom because usually those are doing some
0: something specific,
2: something internal specific to that public method that you want to encapsulate,
0: kind of. Yeah,
2: so I just kind of move it off to its own. I put it at the bottom, group it, and how I usually group them depending on what the private methods are doing, but uh, the public ones are always first.
0: See, and I think this might be the exception to the regions. Like, I feel like in this type of scenario. Yeah. That might be a good case. This is what I but thought But I can also see how like your point was very valid. The yeah. region is kind of feeding the monster of it's okay to have this huge monso- monstrosity of a class.
2: Yeah, I'm still on the fence with it. I don't know how I feel about it. Because yeah. if you have a bunch of private methods that, perturn, that, that pertain to, I don't, I don't know, database communication, and then you have a bunch that are specific to like file manipulation or something, I don't know, then I would naturally region those to say, okay, here's all of my database methodology. And I would close that. And then here's all of my file manipulation. And I would close that. And that's why I would use regions. So maybe I would preface that by saying no regions inside of methods. But then that's it a does. Def- definitely, definitely. That's a definitely a thing. <laughs> but yeah. but for if, if you're like me and you skip two lines after in between each region to give it its you know amount of space that makes it separate mm-hmm. then a region takes up an extra 10 lines, mm-hmm. eight lines, who knows? Then okay, then you are in fact facilitating a longer file for every region you have in there. So it's real how important is that organization structure to you? Yeah. I don't know if your methods are named correctly and and put in the right order as long as all your methods are closed you can probably glance through and see the transition anyways so maybe regions aren't necessary I like them but yeah (laughs) I
0: think I I think you I'm on the fence about it so yeah exactly
2: (laughs) I went from completely on board to now I'm like well now I have no idea but I guess that's a transition in the right direction (laughs)
1: Notes. <laughs> I had a couple of questions. Um, hmm. I wrote them down. And these, these might fall out of scope. I guess I'm just curious if you would include them in the standard. Um, let me just say in both. The first one is, would you have a standard allowing or disallowing to do comments in your code? And the second one is, in your standard, um, would you want to state the environments or versions you're trying to support. So in c Sharp, um, what version of .NET are we coding up to? And then in the internet, the web browser world, um, I think like ES ES versions, like IE11 doesn't support later versions of ES. I'm not too sure what that is. But having that in the standard, and that way you could look at someone's check-in and say, I mean, this, this line of code will not work in IE11. We cannot accept this. That, well, your unit tests would probably... Well, let's start with the first thing. Um, to-dos.
2: To-dos. Yeah, to-dos are a fungus. Like, you should not, we should not have to-dos in our comment base. And the only reason they, they... Maybe they should be comments on the check-in against our work items that say, hey, this covers option A, but in the future we need option B. But really everything we write down in a to-do ought to be a new Trello card that exists in our backlog. It shouldn't be in the code base checked in as to-do. Hey, we're not thinking about, I don't know, what have you. In this scenario, we're only covering option A. I, that's how I, I feel about it.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. We should definitely, but that's just that's just kind of like telling developers to be better developers. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think I don't think there should be a specific like line item, if you will, in the coding standard saying, don't write to-do's, I think to-do's are important. And I think um, what's important, though, is to have a specific way of writing the to-do's. So always spell to-do the name that of the person that put it there and then what the to-do is. Because um, I think, actually, some IDEs uh, have like a tool built into them, like I think Eclipse has it, like a a tool built into it to grab all the to-dos from your source code and make a list of them.
1: I've seen that. Yeah.
0: So I think to-dos are are good. Um, however, I did see something in an article that said if you're if you have time to write a to-do, chances are more than likely you can probably fix that to-do. Like you can probably implement that to-do or do that to-do unless it's some really big feature or something that's being left for later.
2: If, oh, man, I don't know how I feel about that. I yeah. hate writing to-dos. I think it
0: I depends, feel- and that's why I don't think it should be in the coding standard. I don't think I'll
1: it's I'll write to-dos for myself. Like, if I'm done coding for the day, like, I, I have stuff in my head that I know I need to accomplish tomorrow, and so I'll write the to-do to say, do this next time, and the next time I write it, but it's not going to be in... To check in or in the release code. It's see, it's almost like putting um, a bookmark.
2: I'll see on my personal projects, I almost always have like a to-do text file that I never check in. And when I'm working on something, you know, I'll check in everything I did for the day. But if I forgot to add some new, let's say I'm working on a on a, a React thing and there's a control I wanted to create and I didn't get around to it, then I will say, you know, on my to-do list. I'll add it to the number one slot and like create control that does X. And I won't check that in because I don't want that to do list to bloat. Ideally the code I'm checking in should all, you know, it should always be working. It should always have all the features that I expected to have it checked in. It shouldn't be in any kind of broken state. So I think a to do kind of says, Oh, well, you know, didn't get around to this, but I'm checking everything in. And I don't know if that belongs in the history of the, of the file.
1: It doesn't.
0: So I'll bring up an example that, because I wrote a to do in the very beginning of when we were first creating our Android player and the API, I put a to do of not implementing the implementing the load balancing mm-hmm. that we do whenever we have a bunch of stuff basically hammering the server. We have load balancing, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I put it to do in there saying, we're not actually doing this. Uh, we'll need to do this in the future. And we're not doing it because it's basically its own feature and its own user story of implement. Because we'd have to implement it on the Android side and on the API side, which um, at the time, this was when we first created the API and we're first creating the Android player. And so... We were just trying to get basically a proof of concept up in like the hello world, essentially of the player and API up. Um, so in that case, I think the to do was very needed. And
1: so it depends how you're using the to do. Like in uh, Justin, yeah. his to dos are very transient, and then yours is very long term.
2: But is yeah. that is that the but but are uh, they I do necessary? Think, like, right. Justin, like, he, like you
0: said, you, I should have probably created a card in the backlog. Right. But maybe I did, but it's probably way in the backlog. Stuff gets added to the backlog all the time. But I think we now we've changed we can go. trello boards now. But what actually happened was um,
1: Joe looked
0: at the code where we were do- where we, if that um, load balancing code were there, he knew where to go look, and he saw my to do comment and was easily and, and responded very quickly to the email saying. Here's the to do. It's not implemented. Hmm. So,
2: yeah. I guess I could get behind the idea of of you think like adding a Trello card, creating a user story in TFS, and then if you're writing a to do, writing a to do that, like to do in a location, user story, and a number. That way. It's, there's no long comment. There's no, there's no, there's no all this garbage. Like in the future, we need to implement blah, blah, blah. It's just to do user story X. That way, if that, That's a user story, that user story it exists in TFS, it has a history date. You know how long it's been in there. It has a Trello card. It's already been created. You know where to go and make your comments in the future. But as far as the code base is concerned, you're talking about 30, a maximum of 20 characters.
0: I really like that one to do's so, like, to put that into words, into so you could put it as an actual rule in a coding standard, mm-hmm. to-dos should have links or a reference to an actual rep, an actual work item. So, like, like in TFS, a work item, or in Jira, a Jira ID or ticket number, whatever they use. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like in code review, you could easily say you need to change that to do and actually make a real work item for it and reference it in the code.
1: Sure.
2: That's a good idea. Yeah. And then if you're doing, you know, then if you're picking up that user story, you can just search it into in visual studio. You can just say user story X, Y, Z. It takes you right to the location in code. And you're like, Oh, perfect. This is where I have to implement it. Ideally.
0: Yeah. So now I, I think it still works. What I was thinking was in the case that I brought up earlier, Say if Joe saw that to-do and I put a work item number, yeah, maybe it would still work. Maybe he would just look up that work item and see.
2: Well, you would have the list of work balancing. items. You know, we'd have a list of work items that are, are user stories that still aren't closed. Okay. And, you know I mean? And you would say, oh, this one says load balancing, which is what we were just talking about. And then when you searched it, you would know where. So your, your search would go from searching through code for to-dos to literally just pulling a query of your user stories that haven't been resolved. And you know, if there's a user story in there, most likely, I mean, I guess it, it, it could be, I guess not every user story may have a comment in the code. So maybe there's a bit of a disconnect there, but I guess if you put actual link, I don't know, there might be a bit of disconnect, but I like the the shortness of just having a number versus having all these vague descriptions
0: Well, yeah, no, I really like it because you're tracking it somewhere other than the source so someone doesn't have to go and dig through it, have to know where in the code load balancing is supposed to happen, Mm -hmm. and yeah, no, I really like that.
1: And the second item was do you put like which version of something you're targeting in the document? In the standard, yeah, in the standard. So I've seen some check-ins that fail because that developer was using um, oh a, a feature that only exists in a newer version of C Sharp. I
2: I wouldn't think that goes in the standard. I think yeah. if you're yeah. somebody's using C Sharp eight, and everybody else is using C Sharp seven somebody's in the wrong (laughs) somebody's not doing what the project was set up for yeah I think that
0: so the problem Jack where that happened was in our legacy code base where we don't have the there's a lot of problems (laughs) with that like this if we were starting with a brand new project we could easily fix this by just setting the language version to a specific version, and that would be like a build configuration. Um, but unfortunately, we have a lot of projects, legacy projects and things where we can't, we can, but it would take a lot of.
1: Okay, so you're trying to create like a unified standard for all these different projects. It's not just one standard per project. Is that right?
2: No, it could be a standard per project, but yeah. we're also ideally this project is is, we're incubating the project as we're, as the standard was created, so there would be no you're you're never going back and having a versioning conflict. It's it's a it's a now project. It's our Android project right now. You you know exactly what version it was developed under. It's targeting a specific version. If it ever moves up, it was a team discussion and decision, and it was tested and it was moved up as a unit. It's never you know, when we go back and work on legacy and you try to write some, you know, C sharp seven functional method and it doesn't understand how that works or something like that. That's just, that's a different problem. Okay. That's a legacy issue. (laughs) All right.
0: Um, So I guess while we're on the topic of legacy, when I want to go up my uh, couple notes I had on legacy code.
2: Professional segue. That was nice.
0: <laughs> so, the first one was uh, legacy code style should supersede the, st- the standard. So, if you're in legacy code in a class that doesn't adhere to this coding standard, don't try to go and change everything in that class file. Just basically leave it the way it is and don't try to, uh, don't basically mix styles because mixing the styles in a class is going to make it even harder to read than, you know, bad coding practices.
1: I think and that's on a that's on a per basis.
0: Uh, yeah, for the most part. Um, I mean, I can't think of anything right now that um, that applies to like a whole project. Uh, but yeah, I would say on a profile basis. Now that I think about it, maybe it should be on a whole project level, because maybe you don't want to mix a new class using a different structure. So the whole point of this is to have a unified code base to so that where it looks all the same, so we can go from one class to another class and not have to switch contexts on things that are going to look differently.
1: I guess, if you're already committed that you're not going to go update all that old code. If you already made that commitment as a team, then maintain the standard. But if there is um, the drive to go update all that legacy code, like I'm just thinking in, in abstract. If there is um, a push to go update all that legacy code, then you might think of it differently. That's tough that is very tough because it's tough if you make
2: that decision then yeah you start having this some files are very new and very organized and some are absolute chaos but the problem is if even if you're you know very big air quotes adhering to the, the the legacy standard some of our legacy projects you can tell that multiple developers were working on these it's clear in some cases which developer was doing which portions of code and so not only is there no style but if you start adhering to a new style is anybody even going to really notice because it's just going to be another <laughs> difference you know what i mean so so yeah. is and this leads us to what we talked about last time the kind of the cleaning up the area you're working in each time if i go work in a file or a class a file that's let's say it's a hundred lines long and making a change to that file and bring it to the to the now isn't detrimental. Well, it could be, though, depending on how many places that file is referenced. So yeah, I guess. Yeah, in- this is a difficult.
0: This could probably spawn its own conversation because there's so many different edge cases. And yeah, just,
1: yeah it's yeah. But have a standard. Just, just say something and then stick to it, right?
0: Yeah, that's an, that's an important thing. Have a, a standard on what to do with the legacy. That's definitely an important thing to do.
2: It probably wouldn't be so detailed, but it would probably be some naming conventions and just some things that say, all right, at least going forward, please at least do this.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: Did you have any notes on how to treat... um, like outside facing code versus internal code, how defensive um, different parts of the code should be.
0: I think that's its own its own conversation. I, I don't think that's.
1: Um, okay, well, not going over the details, would you have. Oh, I find I about that in your standard since we don't have time.
0: Yes and no, maybe. I don't know. That's a, that's a difficult one.
1: I mean, you wouldn't have to explicitly say be defensive in all these internal and like data classes. But I think you would want to explicitly say how defensive you're being at like the API level.
0: Yeah, I would say. But that's in your markup. I would want to, but it's hard to put it in a coding standard because it's not. It's very open to. It's subjective, I think. I think like that's where, where you should be defensive and where you shouldn't. I mean, it's obvious to be very defensive at the front line, like at the API level, but then it's um, not so obvious how far down you go when you till you start stop being defensive. Uh, and I think that that area, once you get further down, like to the lower levels of the code, it's hard to determine where you should stop being so defensive and put that into words to where some a developer can go and read and say, I'm following that or I'm not following that. Oh. Yeah, so so basically, it's just hard to put into words to put into a standard.
1: Okay. That's,
0: that's all I'd have to say about that. <laughs> I'd want it in my standard, but I wouldn't know how to put it into one into words at least.
2: I think that's covered by your your markup write-ups, your you know your summary write-ups, and more spe- and more specifically the unit tests and the code coverage, right? You know exactly what's causing what issues if you're writing good unit tests. So it's just a matter of writing in your markup for your API. Let's say it says you know you can't if you send me null values you're going to get back exactly this. But if you send me this valid information, you're going to get back exactly this. And that's as defensive as you need to be, right? It's outward facing, and it's for the person using it from that point forward. They have the information, as long as they read what the code actually does or what you've provided for them, and then it's to them.
1: Well, so if you're defining all this behavior in your markup, then your code has to be as defensive as the markup. But if you're not... Being defensive in your code, you can't be defensive in the markup. So if you if well, you pass it, me nulls and my method isn't doing any null validation, then what the method's going to do isn't really defined whatsoever.
2: Well, it's the other way around, right? It's not your code isn't going to do what the markup says. Uh, your your markup is going to define what the code already does. Yeah. Right? You're right. You're writing that last. You have you already have unit tests. If there's anything that the markup doesn't cover and your unit tests don't don't, uh, also don't cover Then you did something wrong, right? You've, you've missed it. There's a gap in the definition of what you're writing, right? You should have covered everything
1: ideally. So you're saying you should have covered everything in the code and that should be in the standard. No, it should be in the API
2: documentation. What have you, I don't think it's in the standard. I think the standard says you need to define your summary in what you're putting in, what the method does, and what you're getting out.
0: Yeah, I don't think you can put in words how to be defensive and where to be defensive. Like, if you can, I think let me know, because I I would want to have something in the standard about it, but like I said, I don't think there's a way to put it into words to where you could actually follow it.
1: If you don't have like a a strongly typed programming language like, like Python, Like, if Mm -hmm. if my method accepts three parameters, being defensive would be making sure that each of those inputs is a certain type of variable. But if you're writing a standard for Python,
2: you're writing a a different beast than you're writing a standard for C Sharp, right? So yeah, your standard might have to have some definitions for type validation because that's not intrinsically there in Python. Whereas in C sharp, that's not something you need to point out specifically, because I mean, you can say don't use vars, right? Don't you know? Don't be dynamic if you don't have to be.
0: But even in that case, I think um, the point I was trying to make is you can't really um, you can't really define in words how. When to be defensive, because in your case, like you're saying, you want to check each one of those parameters passed in for a certain type or that it is a certain type that we said. Yeah. Okay. so say that's in your coding standard that you have to check um, the types of variables passed into a parameter. What if those parameters pass into one method and then those same parameters are passed to another method and then those are passed to another method, which is a perfectly viable case, I would think. Right. I mean, you, you're going to have these methods that pass on methods.
2: Right. But the type stocks
0: Right. But that's what I'm saying. Like, how do you say be defensive at the first level and don't be defensive at subsequent levels?
1: I'm suggesting you just say, really that, say that. And you're saying that's not reasonable. You can't,
0: because what if um, the second method you call actually does some manipulation, does an API call that might uh, change that variable? Um, might modify things on that variable say there's a property on that variable that can be nullable and after the api call you know it or you set it to an invalid variable or invalid value and then pass it on to the next method if you said you only have to be defensive at the top level that bottom method is going to fail okay i what i what i'm trying to say is basically it's there's too many variables, no pun intended, <laughs> to uh, to put this into words of where to be defensive and where not to be defensive.
2: Yeah, yeah I, and I think we have to keep, especially in this scenario where we're talking, we're basically talking about C sharp. Yeah, we have to keep specifically that in mind for this definition, because yeah, as soon as you enter Python, you may require that all of the methods are, you know, they check they do their own type validation since that's not something you get intrinsically. So yeah, that's part of your standard. Every method needs to do some type validation on method on the variables it's being passed to guarantee you know, you're getting what you expect to get.
0: Yeah. Well, even a C-sharp, I think it still applies because say you have a, a database connection, mm-hmm. you pass it into the first method. That first mesh- method is really defensive and it checks... Is the database connection open? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's open. Let's do some database uh, things. Let's write some stuff or read some stuff. And then I need to pass it to this other method to do something. That other method now just assumes, because it's not being defensive, assumes that the database connection is open. But say something went wrong, data connection was closed, or...
2: But is uh, it? Right, if you're writing a unit test for the deeper method already let's say you've written the deeper one first and mm-hmm. you wrote a unit test that, that unit te- you you better have written unit tests that check whether the connection's valid or not and then not if that.
0: you're saying that lower method shouldn't be defensive if you're saying a lower method shouldn't be defensive i'm not going to write a, a unit test that checks for that because it um in that case like that lower method that mm-hmm isn't being defensive at all, isn't checking the database connection, I would write in the data contract saying assumes database connection is open. Um, throws exception, if, um, database connection is not open. Okay. So it's assuming the people above it's gonna handle it.
2: Okay. So some kind of layer you've written some layer that's abstract from the actual connection and disconnection. And it's like, well, you hope you better manage this on the layer above. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is to that. I,
0: I think it's hard to put it, I don't think you can put it into words. That's <laughs> my answer for it. I don't think you can define it in the standard. Okay.
2: I agree with that, I guess. I think you
0: can have like a guideline, like saying be defensive at a high level and be less defensive as you go down and write data contracts, but you can't You can't have like a clear and defined line item saying this is what it should be.
2: You don't want to be defensive a hundred percent of the time because that's a lot of wasted right turning on information. It doesn't need to be checked. 15 times as it goes through each layer. Right. There's no reason for that. Hopefully,
1: in a code review, you you might not ever say, You're being too defensive here, don't do that, unless you know of some performance issue that would cause. But you would want to have something as a reviewer to point to you that says, You're not being defensive enough here. And the original author might disagree. And so just having something to break the stalemate, having a loose suggestion or guideline to say just be defensive over here yeah i could be be, being naive but
0: i yeah i could be being naive but i think that's like uh that's kind of an obvious thing i would hope like
1: well it depends on how experienced you are you guys are more experienced than i am and in, in qa we're all not as experienced so Having more explicit standards or guidelines is going to help us a lot more than it might help you guys.
0: Yeah, I guess that's where you could have a different coding standard because, like I said at the beginning, I think the coding standard shouldn't get too big. Like, you you shouldn't just start adding stuff to the coding standard just to add stuff. I think you should have the most important stuff that's not completely obvious and that.
1: So you're not putting coding principles in the standard. You're putting. The styles and the...
0: Um, I'm actually convention. leaving out a lot of the styles and um, some of the conventions, and I'm kind of leaving that to the tool.
1: But you to are leaving that. out basic principles, is what you're saying. And being defensive at the, at the exposed API level is just a basic principle.
0: Mm, yeah, I guess. Yeah. But I mean, I think some of the Things that I do include go hand in hand with, with some of the standard principles like the, the complexity standards like those make you be or make you have functions that are that abide by single responsibility that um, and reusability on functions that's kind of a standard principles, I guess. So I'm not leaving them completely out, I guess.
2: All right. I feel, like it's, I feel like it's a bit of a, I don't want to call it an edge case, but this is. This feels like one of those scenarios where you, kind of, you have to be in front of, you need to be in front of the issue. And you might not be, if you show it to me five times, I might answer it the same way twice and another way, three times, depending on the scenario. So that's if, if, if it's not always black or white, it can't really be something you can define in a set of rules you expect everyone to follow. I mean, since a lot of these are pretty much, I don't know if any of these aren't black and white, you know, you define something like this, you don't use these you need to be under this scenario there are a few words if you're not under this, you better have a really good reason why you don't. yeah but even that you're really you should be really be arguing your case for it to be ever go your way in those scenarios so it's just it's still pretty black and white
0: yeah and I think that's important like um, for me the reason I, I want I wanted to come up with a standard was so that we can move to a code review and to make the code review easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way you make the code review easier is by having the standard that has black and white bullet points yeah. where you can say you're following this or you're not following this. And it, if you have these things in there that are objective, like um,
1: uh, you can measure complexity.
0: Yeah, you can measure complexity. You can, you can see is someone not logging an exception. Um, you can see is someone not naming something correctly.